Alrighty, so we're going to finish Daniel chapter 11 and start chapter 12 today. So from chapter 11 verse 36 through to chapter 12 verse 2. So just as revision, what we did last week is verses 2 through 34 cover or chronicle 375 consecutive years of Jewish history. And we covered that last week. And that was from the Medo-Persian Empire to towards the end of the Grecian Empire with Antiochus Epiphanes. And then we get to verse 35 and suddenly we have this break. It stops. The last thing we read about in verse 34 is Antiochus Epiphanes in about 164 BC. And suddenly we find ourselves in the end times in verse 36. So basically, what we covered last week was in the first 69 weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks, and this week we're in the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks. So there's a church age in between, and we're skipping that. So when the church age is over, when the believers are raptured, Daniel's 70th week, the time of the tribulation, dawns or begins. And that's why Daniel jumps from Antiochus Epiphanes to the end times which are yet to come. So again, Antiochus Epiphanes was part of the first 69 weeks, and now we go to the 70th week, where one even more vile and evil than Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene, and we know him as the Antichrist. So I'm just going to jump in, and we'll explain as we go through why this is future and not past from 36 on. It should become pretty clear as we read it. All right, so I'm going to read from verse 35 in Daniel chapter 11. But before we do, I'll pray. Father, thank you for this fantastic section of Scripture. Lord, next week we're going to finish it off and we're going to talk about the resurrection and the consummation. You're coming back. You're setting up your kingdom. And that's what this is all about. It's all about you. It's pointing to you. And it gives us hope. Lord, it's going to be rough along the way, but Lord, we have hope in you. And we just thank you that your plans are for the good. Lord, the the Jewish nation is going to be refined, they're going to go through the fire, but they're going to come out beautiful, and they're going to come out worshipping you. And Lord, the same is true for us. We go through trials in our own lives, and the purpose is to make us more like you, to make us beautiful. So help us to understand this, Father, help us to put our hope in you, and to trust you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 35, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So here we go. So basically, Antiochus Epiphany has persecuted the Jews, and guess what? The Jews have been persecuted ever since. There's been all kinds of things happened to them. I should be preaching here, I should be reading. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honour a god of fortresses, a God which his fathers did not know he shall honour with gold 
and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide their land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Now into chapter 12. Just to pause here, this is an unfortunate chapter break. This is a continuous section of scripture. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the feminine, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest, and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So, I read the remainder of chapter 12 just to give you the context, to show that it really is about the end times, but we won't be talking about that last part of chapter 12 until next week. So, verse 35. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So the time between Antiochus and the Antichrist. Some may say, but how do you know? Well, 
the verse says, until the time of the end. There's going to be this purification process, this persecution that's going to go on until the time of the end. And if you look back in history, it's true. The Jews have been persecuted many, many times. We'll cover that a bit later. Now, I want to just go and look at a couple of other references where there's a combination of first coming prophecy and second coming prophecy in the same paragraph, in the same sentence even, and there's actually a big time gap in between. Because some people say, well, there's no, doesn't say there's a big time gap there, but this is Old Testament prophecy, and it's quite common to have time gaps, and it doesn't tell you there's a time gap. And this is one of the reasons why Old Testament prophecy can be difficult to explain. So the first one we looked at already, I read already, I'm not going to do it again, is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And verse 9, talking about Jesus coming the donkey, has already come to pass. But verse 10 is second coming, where he's going to beat the swords and the plowshares and there's no more war, he's going to deliver his people. That's the second coming. So within two verses, you've got the first coming and the second coming. But I want to show you another example where there is a massive time gap where there doesn't appear to be one. So if we go to Luke four sixteen to 21, this is Jesus. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and gave it back to the intendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what I'm going to do is put up where that comes from. And I've put in italics the parts of it that relate to the first coming, and I've bolded the parts that relate to the second coming. Now, you've noticed there that the only thing that separates the first coming scriptures or references to the second coming is a comma. It's actually halfway through a sentence. (laughs) Jesus stopped halfway through a sentence when he was telling us which prophecies has been fulfilled. So I'm going to read Isaiah 61, 1-3. So the first part is first coming. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where Jesus stopped. That's how far he went. That's the first coming. The second coming, just separated by a comma, continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. Obviously, that's not the first coming. To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. That's what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. He's going to revive the Jewish nation. 
So no wonder the Jews were confused before the first coming of Jesus with all the seemingly contradictory information about the coming Messiah. And, you know, the phrase hindsight is always twenty twenty. <laughs> always remember that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Okay, so the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So the New Testament brings understanding to the Old Testament and it helps explain the stories, types and prophecies of the Old Testament. And it's really good having seen, because where we stand in history right at the end, we've seen most of those prophecies already fulfilled and now we can see clearly, okay, well that's first coming, that's second coming. But if you were living in the Old Testament before these events happened, there would be some confusion. And that's what I believe, we'll get to it later, God said to Daniel at the end of chapter 12, seal up this, because it's not for now, it's for the end. That's for next week. Alright, verse 36 to 45, just going to summarize this. So taken as a whole, verses 36 to 45 is a description of the closing days of the last half of of the tribulation period, specifically what we call the Great Tribulation or Jacob's Trouble. The Great Tribulation with its world ruler, world religion, and materialistic philosophy. Now, in spite of its satanic origin and support, the world government splits or fragments, and this results in a great war which climaxes with the second advent or coming of Christ. And this brings the time of the Gentiles to a close with the destruction of the wicked rulers who lead it. So that's basically a summary of what we're going to read in the next 10 or so verses. So verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. So we're talking about someone new here, the king. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Now, And the king shall do according to his will. So just like Lucifer who said, I will be like God, which caused him to be cast from heaven and become Satan. You find that in Isaiah 14.14. The Antichrist who is filled with Satan does according to his own will. Now, we can contrast this with Jesus. Then what did Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. In Luke 22.42. And the Antichrist, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. And the angel explained to Daniel that the king would blaspheme God and exalt himself until the wrath has been accomplished and what has been determined shall be done. So basically God has set a time and once that time had finished, once those things had been done, it's done. Now, again, contrasting Antichrist and Jesus. The Antichrist exalts and magnifies himself. What does Jesus do? Although he is equal with God, he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation, Philippians 2, 7 and 8. So you hear the world system versus what the Bible says about becoming great. Remember what the Bible says about becoming great? He who is greatest among you must be servant of all. So above every God, it's a shift from what we saw fulfilled in the Ptolemies and the Seleucids last week, this doesn't fit what happened with Antiochus. This is material, this is 
events that have not happened yet. You can't go back in history and say, oh, it just happened here or here or here. So this is unfulfilled prophecy at this stage. And they're going to give you three reasons for that. One is, first one, is that it's not fulfilled by Antiochus Pythonis, therefore it can't apply to him. But there's two others. Jesus specifically said that the real abomination of desolation was still in the future. And if we look at Matthew 24, 15 to 31, so this is Jesus talking about this passage, this chapter, the abomination of desolation. So Matthew 24, 15 to 31, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And continuing... Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is Jesus still talking in Matthew, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So, why did I read that fairly long passage of scripture? Because Jesus is relating the abomination of desolation to his second coming. There will be someone, another person, we believe he's the Antichrist, who will go into the temple, defile the temple, and it will happen just before Jesus comes back. The third reason, and again it's a scriptural reason, it's Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Again, talking about the Antichrist. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, talking about the second coming, unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, all that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, Antiochus didn't go that far. So, summary. Antiochus Epiphanes is important, but mostly as a historical preview of the Antichrist. And this is why so much space is given to describing the career of this one evil man, Antiochus, because he prefigures, or he's a type of the real Antichrist who is yet to come. 
So if you think about it as a movie, Antiochus Epiphanes is the trailer, and he's released well before the Antichrist, who is like the feature. Does that make sense? Now, it says there in verse 36, He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. And yes, Antiochus did this in a general sense, in that, like all sinners, oppose God. Yet he remained loyal to the Greek religious system. And God has a plan, and we read that plan just before in Daniel, at the end of the 1,335 days, it's finished. Or 1,290 days. So, Let's go to verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and of God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So this is interesting. There's a couple of interpretations for these verses. So first off, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. So some people say that, well, he must be Jewish because he talks about the, the God of his fathers. And he's not going to regard the desire of women. Well, could that mean he's a homosexual? Well, maybe. But there's another interpretation here. Many commentators believe that the desire of women refers to Jesus, in that all women desire the honor of bearing the Messiah. And understanding desire as it is used in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, is wanting something. So, yeah, you can make up your own mind. Verse 37 also, Nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. So, Antichrist is going to be his own God. Do you know anyone who is their own God? Atheists. Atheists worship the Damas God of them all, (laughs) themselves, because they don't believe there's anything else. They say, I will worship only that which I can understand and comprehend. And in so doing, in so saying, they worship their own intellect. That's all they believe is real for them. Verse 38, He shall honor a god of fortresses. The Antichrist shall take and hold power with military might, and he's going to use money to get what he wants. So the Antichrist will come in peaceably, but then he's going to accumulate a vast army. And then in verse 40, Flying through this, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand over against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So basically it starts off there in verse 40, at the time of the end. So we're talking about the end times. We're not talking about a time in the Medo-Persian kingdom now or the Grecian kingdom. We're talking about the time of the end. So 
the king of the south and the king of the north are not the same players as in the first part of chapter 11. King of the north, it could be Russia, it could be a confederation of nations, it doesn't tell us, it doesn't give us all the things. Remember, earlier on it said, just write down the main facts, so he's just giving us the main facts. But what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to defeat this rebellion, he's going to overcome this rebellion, and he's going to have control of the financial system, of the gold, the silver, and all the precious things. And then it says, verse 44, But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So, at the very last part of the seven-year tribulation period, what it indicates here is that there's going to be news from the east and the north. So basically you've got this, maybe China, India, who knows coming across to fight the Antichrist and they get there but they don't end up fighting each other they end up trying to fight Jesus but Jesus wins (laughs) so this is a very very condensed version of what's going to happen so the end time the last three and a half years of the tribulation period is going to be marked by great conflict and rebellion we've read before that three kings are going to be plucked out of the ten and replaced by the Antichrist. So that could be a part of this. And in addition to all this rebellion and war going on in the last three and a half years, there's going to be all the plagues and all the the judgments from God. So not a good time to be alive. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. And in the end there is no hope for the Antichrist or for any of his followers because God said, you know, he sets up his judgment, as we read before. His throne is set up, and the judgment is given in favor of the believers. Amen. And the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. So now we continue, and we're going into chapter 12, but it's really a continuation of that same text. So it says in chapter 12, verse 1, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So at that time, this is talking about the same period of time as it was talking about in the previous verses. It's talking about the end time. It's talking about the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. So Michael shall stand up. Now who's Michael? He's Michael the archangel. Now, Who was Satan's opposite? Is it Jesus? No, that's not Jesus. People think the fight is between Jesus and Satan. Well, Jesus is God. Satan's just an angel of high rank. But here we have Michael, an angel of high rank, an archangel. And he is Satan's true opposite. Satan is not the opposite of Jesus. He is the opposite of Michael this high-ranking angel, who, as it says in this verse, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So he's a spiritual warrior, but he has a special job in protecting Israel. God has appointed Michael the archangel as a spiritual guardian over Israel. And I bet he's a good friend to have. And so later on in Revelation, we find that Michael 
the archangel fights with Satan and defeats him and in the halfway point of the tribulation he, Satan loses his access to heaven. So there will be a time of trouble and this is a time of persecution for Israel and the world and we know this is a great tribulation or time of Jacob's trouble. And where do we get that from? We get it from Jeremiah chapter 30 verses 7 to 9. It says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, that take it as being the Antichrist, and will burst your bonds. Foreigners will no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And going on, it says, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So I mentioned this before, that the Jews, they've had a lot of troubled times. Well, here's just a few. When Samaria fell, when Jerusalem fell, they were eating their babies. They were dying of pestilence. Many, many people died. It was a terrible form of persecution and judgment by God because of the disobedience. But we can keep on going. You've got the terrors and all the death caused by Antiochus Epiphanes. And then you move ahead more to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Many, 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 many Jews were killed then. The Jews were persecuted by the church during the Dark Ages. Then you've got the programs of Europe, and then you've got the 20th century Holocaust under Hitler. It seems like all of Israel's history has been a time of trouble. Yet this time of trouble will be different. This will be a worse time of trouble than Israel has ever seen before. And Zechariah chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 gives us an insight to this. We're going to read it soon, not quite yet. But it tells us that during this period, two-thirds of the Jews will die. Now I just want to come back to the idea of the Great Tribulation. Jesus quoted this passage in Matthew twenty four twenty one. He said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world, unto this time, no, nor ever shall be. So unfortunately, for the Jews, the worst is still yet to come. Now, why is it going to be so terrible? Why is this going to be the worst situation that the Jews are going to find themselves in? Well, Revelation twelve seven to 17 tells us why. I'm going to summarize it first, then we'll read it. It describes the fury of the devil, Satan, directed towards the Jewish people and the tribulation saints. And it happens because Michael, the archangel, and Satan fight. Satan and his armies are defeated. They are cast down from heaven, and they no longer have access to heaven. Because prior to the three and a half year point in the tribulation, they have access to heaven, like in the book of Job. But at this point, no. And so Satan knows that his time is short. And the Jewish people will be the targets of the full fury of the devil and his antichrist during this period. And we'll live in a world that is in incredible upheaval because of the judgment of God. However, God is going to protect them by taking them to Bosra or Petra during this time. And the antichrist will then turn his sights onto the tribulation saints instead. 
and that's why there's going to be many martyrs in the tribulation period. So here is Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 17. Verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And it continues in verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's Israel. The male child is Jesus. Verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So Israel is protected in the wilderness, most likely Bosra or Petra, same place, it's different names. Verse 15, So the serpent, or Satan, spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. That's like he sends out his armies. It's a fairly typical reference for armies in the Bible. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Israel is taken somewhere, put in a safe place. The Antichrist sends his armies. The earth somehow miraculously swallows his armies. He knows he can't touch them. He knows they're protected. So what does he do? And the dragon was enraged. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, that's the tribulation saints, the Gentile believers in that time period who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, summary, when Michael the archangel kicks Satan out of heaven, Satan will come to earth and take out his frustration on Israel and the tribulation believers. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew twenty four twenty two that unless the days were shortened, all flesh would be destroyed. So why does Satan so badly want to destroy the Jews? Why does he hate them so much? Well, they've always been his target. He's always sought to destroy them because he knows that God had ordained to accomplish his purposes through that nation, through the nation of Israel. And Satan has attempted in times past to destroy the nation of Israel in order to thwart the purposes of God. Like when Herod tried to kill all the babies. What was Satan trying to do? He was trying to kill the Messiah. As an example. Okay, now the second half of verse 1. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So, who's your people? It's Daniel's people, it's the Jews. Now, despite how bad it's going to be, deliverance is assured. No matter how great the attack is against the Jewish people, God promises to protect and preserve them. He will never break his promise to Abraham. What did he say? 
in Genesis 17, 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to your descendants after you. Now it says there, still in verse 1, and everyone who is found written in the book. What book is this? I would say the book of life. Those who are believers, those who are saved, those who put their trust in God. So this promise of deliverance is not for every last person of Jewish heritage, but only for those Jews who are found written in the book. So not every person of Jewish heritage will be saved. Yet Israel as a whole will be known as a people who trust in Jesus as their Messiah and truly turn to the Lord. And we read that in Romans eleven twenty five to 27. But I'm going to read Romans 9, 6 to 8 to explain what it means by not all Israel is Israel. So Romans 9, 6 to 8. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. So, just because you're a Jew, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to heaven, that you're going to be protected by God. You need to believe in the Messiah. And that's what the Jews are going to do. They're going to welcome the Messiah. And that's exactly what's going to happen when he comes back. The Jews will finally welcome and recognize their own Messiah. So now we come to this prophecy that two-thirds of the Jews will perish during this time. The ones who will go through are the ones who will repent. So the tribulation period or Jacob's trouble will be used by God to refine and purify the Jewish nation. So those who refuse to believe, those whose hearts are hard, they will perish. And so the verses are in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. And it says, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. So these are the people who will accept their Saviour. Now verse 2, the last verse for today. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this is referring to a bodily resurrection, not just the resurrection of Israel, I believe. Now, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Bible clearly teaches that there are how many resurrections? Two resurrections. One for the saved and one for the damned. How do we know that? Well, we can look at some verses. What does Jesus say? In John 5.29 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there's two resurrections, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. Another scripture that helps us understand the two resurrections is Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. And it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned together with Christ for a thousand years. So the tribulation saints resurrected at the end of the seven years. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So, the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. When the tribulation saints and, and us were all part of the first resurrection, the believer's resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, the lake of fire, has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So, first resurrection includes those who are raptured. It includes the tribulation saints who resurrect at the end of the seven years. It includes everyone probably at the end of the thousand years. If you're a person living in a natural body, at the end you just be transformed into a spiritual body. But those who don't believe, after the thousand years, there's going to be this great white throne judgment. We're not going to read it now, but you read it in, in the end of Revelation, about chapter 20. And that's when the unbelievers will be judged. That's the second resurrection. And that's not a good resurrection to be in, because if you're in that resurrection, you're going to the lake of fire. I'll read that little bit again. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, praise God that we've been washed by the blood of Jesus, and we are part of the first resurrection, or we will be part of the first resurrection, we're obviously not resurrected yet. Now, everlasting contempt. What does everlasting mean? Forever. So, the terror of hell never ends. Some denominations and cults teach annihilation. So basically, uh, you know, God wouldn't punish people forever. We can't imagine God being that nasty. So we believe that God will just wipe them out. So, you know, you can murder, you can do rape, you can do all these things, and you get to the end of your life and you just cease to exist and there'll be no judgment for you. You just cease to exist. That's not the way it works. Another false doctrine that's going around is a modified annihilationism, and that teaches that unjustified sinners, unforgiven sinners, are sent to hell, and they suffer torment for a while, but then their beings perish for eternity. So they'll suffer for a bit, you know, to maybe pay for their sins, and then God wipes them out. No. Revelation 20.10 I'm going to read that one to you now from the Amplified Version. And this talks about the foreverness, the eternalness of punishment that God gives people for their sin. Revelation 20.10 from the Amplified Version says, 
Then the devil who had led them astray, deceiving and seducing them, was hurled into the fiery lake of burning brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever through the ages of the ages. Literally what it means is through the ages of the ages. And Valvord, he says, there would be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than here in mentioning both day and night and the expression forever and ever, literally to the ages of ages. Hell is forever. We must warn people about this. Now, logically, too, hell must be eternal because it is where imperfect beings must pay a continual penalty for their sins because they can never, ever make a perfect payment. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. It went on and on and on. Year after year after year, but those animals would never, ever pay for your sins. You needed the Messiah. So an imperfect payment for sins must be a continual payment for sins, which means it's eternal. So many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So the resurrection of the unjust will occur later after the thousand-year millennial reign and rule of Jesus Christ. The tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints will resurrect at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and the church is raptured or resurrected before the tribulation begins. So, talking about Jesus coming back, we're going to take communion and I just want to read Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20 and it talks about the, the Last Supper. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So, in taking communion, we not only look back, but we look forward. So, we look back to what he's done for us, but we look forward to his second coming. We look forward to the eternal kingdom. So, why do we look forward to this first resurrection? It's because we've been made clean, we've been washed by the blood of Jesus. And as we take communion, we remember that the wine, the grape juice, is representative of the blood of Jesus, which has cleansed us from our sin. We are back in a relationship with God. We are declared not guilty because of the blood of Jesus. And therefore, we can dwell with our perfect Lord and Savior when he sets up his kingdom. Otherwise, we'd be taking a place in the lake of fire. So just as we take the elements, just meditate on what a wonderful Savior we have, what he's done for us, and we look forward to his coming.